0: Jesus was in the temple, the heart of Jerusalem, the heart of Israel, for the temple was the place of worship. The temple was the place for sacrifice for sin. The temple was the place of prayer, was the place where God promised to dwell with his people. Jesus had been teaching in the temple, confronted in the temple, tested in the temple. The religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, had questioned Jesus in order to trap him, snare him, discredit him. But he had bested them. And now he was leaving, leaving the temple never to return. And on the way out, one of his disciples, one of the 12, remarked on the magnificence of the temple, the structural wonder of the temple, and it certainly was. This was not the first temple in Jerusalem. That temple was built by King Solomon. It was destroyed in the 6th century BC. This was the second temple, completed about 400 years before our passage. But King Herod, the king who ruled when Jesus was born, wanted to develop the temple, improve the temple, expand the temple, make it a monument to his reign. So, for 50 years, the temple had been under continuous construction. Herod had expanded the base so that it encompassed 35 acres, a circumference of about a mile. And 12 football fields could have fit inside it. Some of the blocks that were used in the construction were over 60 feet long and weighed over 1 million pounds. The portico or port surrounding part of the temple was 45 feet wide and it was supported by four rows of columns that rose 45 feet tall. The sanctuary itself was 12 stories tall. Along with stone, construction consisted of white marble and gold. It was massive, it was stunning, it was breathtaking. It was a wonder. So the disciples were leaving the temple in awe. And then Jesus's words surely left them in awe. Listen to them again. This is from verse two. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, it may be marvelous. It may be stunning. It may be a wonder, but it's going to be gone. And we're not told their immediate reaction. But the question, questions come later. As they sat on the Mount of Olives, which lies across the Kidron Valley, about a mile opposite of Jerusalem, and it rises 300 feet above Jerusalem, they were once again looking upon the temple, of course, this time from a distance. And as they did so, four disciples approached Jesus. These were four of his first followers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. These fishermen had been with Jesus since the beginning. For three years now, they had sat under his teaching. They had witnessed his miracles. These four came to Jesus and they asked him this Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? In other words, they're asking, When will it happen? When will the temple fall? When will the temple be destroyed? How will we know that it's about to happen? The disciples want to know the future. They want to know what to look for. They they want to know the signs. Now, I suspect that most, if not all of you, are no different. You want to know what's going to happen. You want to know the future. You might not put it like that. You'd like to know what What will tomorrow bring? What will next month look like? What will this summer look like? What will a year from now look like? Will you make it through? Will you feel better? Will you graduate on time? Will your business survive? Will it continue to thrive? Will your job ever improve? Will you get that offer that you're, you're waiting on? Will your loved ones still be there? Where will your kids settle? Will they be okay? When will grandkids come? Will our infrastructure get fixed? Will we make it through another presidential election? Is Jesus coming soon? What will be the signs? How will I know? Well, in response to their question, Jesus offers a number of indicators a number of signs, and not one of them positive. Jesus tells them, imposters will come. They will come in Jesus's name. Some will come claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Savior. Many will be led astray by them. He says there will be wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation. He says there will be earthquakes, famines, and those are only the surrounding events. Jesus also describes what will happen to his disciples, to his followers. They'll be hated, betrayed, even by their own family. They'll be delivered to the ruling authorities, councils, governors, kings. They'll be beaten, put to death. Offer the name. Offer the name that is above every name. Offer Jesus. And it happened. It happened all of it, every word that Jesus speaks here came to pass already. Following his crucifixion, several Jewish leaders arose claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be the Messiah. There were rumors of war. In the year 30, just about 10 years after Jesus died, the Roman Emperor Caligula threatened to erect a statue of himself in the temple. Now, only his sudden death prevented this act and what would have surely been a Jewish, a Jewish revolt because of it. But that revolt did happen in the year 66. Total war broke out against Rome. There were large earthquakes and widespread famines across the Mediterranean world prior to the year sixty. And the book of Acts recounts the persecution, abuse, and death of early Christians. It relates how the apostles, including Peter and Paul, were brought before rulers and councils, governors, and kings to witness to Jesus. And Jesus says, this is only the beginning. This is only the start of the birth pains. Now, I've never been pregnant, but I've been present for enough Births, to know that the start of the birth pains means it's going to get worse before it gets better. Then Jesus speaks these words in verse 18 But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, then Mark offers an aside in the middle of Jesus' words let the reader understand. Now, do you understand? Well, if not, you're in good company. Now this is one of the most perplexing, most puzzling, most debated sayings of Jesus in all of the gospels. What in the world is the abomination of desolation? People have been asking that for centuries. Is it a person? Is it an event? Well, the answer is not completely clear, but what is clear is this. It's a disaster that causes great suffering. It's a calamity that causes great tribulation. And Jesus says, when you see it, run. When you see it, head for the hills. Now, to help us understand the phrase, abomination of desolation, it's found in the book of Daniel. Daniel. And in in, in the book of Daniel, it refers to an event that would desecrate the temple, an event that would defile the temple of the Lord. Now, this same phrase was used to describe such an event that actually took place in the year 168 BC. Antiochus IV, a Syrian general, he entered the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it was sacrilege enough that a Gentile, a non-Jew, would enter the temple of the Lord, but he added injury to insult when he built an altar to Zeus, the Greek god of the sky, on top of the altar in the temple. And he then sacrificed a pig on that altar. The abomination of desolation. Well, Jesus uses this phrase to point to a future occurrence just as abominable, just as outrageous, just as egregious. One possibility to understand this is that Jesus is talking about the actual destruction of the temple. Now, the blasphemous desecration by Antiochus was was bad enough, but the temple was still standing. It could be cleansed, it could be purified, it could be used again, but not if it were destroyed. Not if it were torn down stone by stone and left as rubble. Which is exactly what happened in the year 70. The Romans took Jerusalem and General Titus and his army entered the temple and they demolished it. The abomination of desolation. And when this happened, when, when, when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. This was a great time of suffering for those who lived there. This was a great time of suffering for those who were in the surrounding areas, a great time of tribulation when more false Christs arose. But Jesus promises, he promises that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tribulation, God would take care of his people. He would take care of his elect. Those whom he had chosen as his own would save them. When Jesus left the temple, he foretells the destruction of the temple. And the reason is, is this. The time of the temple was over the time of the temple was over because the temple was really a place of preparation. One that pointed to Jesus. One that found its fulfillment in Jesus. But God God promised to be present, dwell with his people in the temple. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. God with us. God, come to us, dwelling among us. God promised that that the temple would be a house of prayer. Jesus teaches that prayer to the Father is through Him, that when you pray in the name of Jesus, the Father hears you, the Father will answer you. The temple was a place of sacrifice for sin, for the forgiveness of sin. Blood had to be offered over and over and over again for sin that was committed over and over and over again. But Jesus is the great high priest who offered the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice, the sacrifice that did not need to be offered over and over again, himself. His death on the cross is all that is needed. His blood is all that is needed for God's people, for you, for the forgiveness of your sin. All of it, past, present, future. God's God's people no longer need the temple. We have the one it pointed to. We have Jesus. Jesus. Now, as much as the disciples wanted to know the future, wanted to know what was going to happen and how they would know when it was happening, Jesus tells them to, Jesus tells them to not always be looking ahead. And he gives them signs, he gives them indicators, but he also tells them this he says, be on guard. In other words, watch out. Pay attention. Pay attention for false Christ, false teachers, for impostors. He also tells them to endure, in other words, to, to persevere, to be steadfast, to be faithful in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations. You see, Jesus does not want his followers just looking ahead, just looking to the future but to live in the present. To faithfully follow him in the present. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself, no matter what is going on around you, no matter what is happening to you. Jesus' words may have already come to pass, but what he described to his four disciples still happens. And we see it today. There are still false teachers, imposters, those who come in Jesus's name but, but lead astray, false teachers. And nearly always, the, the, this false teaching hinges on the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus, it nearly always hinges on his identity and his saving work on the cross. And, and typically it goes something like this. Hey, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great prophet, but he, but he wasn't God. Or it goes something like that. He was God or, or a God, but not a man. Or his death was tragic, but not saving. It simply highlights political oppression that we all need to rise up against. Be on guard, Jesus says. There continues to be war and rumors of war. Ukraine, Russia, Chinese balloons, North Korean missiles. There are earthquakes, earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, famine in South Sudan and Yemen. There continues to be persecuted, betrayed, arrested, beaten, even killed Christians. In countries like China or Pakistan or Nigeria or India or Afghanistan, just to name a few, all for the name. All for claiming the name that is above every name. Simply for following Jesus. Now, with all, with all this going on, have you ever wondered about the future? Are these signs? Will Jesus be coming back soon? Will, will there be another abomination of desolation? Will we suffer? Will we face tribulation? Will we face hardship? Will your children or your grandchildren or those you love? Maybe. But Jesus' words are for you as well. Be on guard. Be alert. Endure. Be steadfast. Be faithful. Be obedient. Don't keep your eyes ahead. Don't keep your eyes just locked on the future, wondering and worrying. Follow your Savior in the present. Now, faithfully, Now he is faithful to you. You are his, his elect. And and that's true in your challenges. That's true in your struggles. That's true in your trials. That's true in your suffering, whatever magnitude they may be in your life, whether it's your health, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, or whether it's the abomination of desolation, either now or in the future. You belong. To him. He is your faithful Savior. Thanks be to God. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi.